Hey, welcome to another episode of The Scrum, WGBH News' political podcast. I'm Adam Riley, and I'm joined by my WGBH News colleague, Peter Kadzis. Peter, hello. Greetings. So, Peter, let me ask you, if you could pick one word and only one word to describe the September 4th Massachusetts primary, what would that word be? Groundbreaking. Groundbreaking. That That's decent. I was going to go with the more dramatic seismic because, and I think it's worth recapping, even though it's somewhat recent history, we had 10-term incumbent Congressman Mike Capuano trounced by Boston City Councilor Ayanna Presley. Rachel Rollins, an African-American woman who said she wants to end mass incarceration, elected as the new district attorney in Suffolk County, and two members of House Speaker Bob DeLeo's leadership team, Ways and Means Chair Jeffrey Sanchez and Majority Whip Byron Rushing, ousted Sanchez by lawyer and activist Nika Obligardo and Rushing by physician John Santiago, both of whom happen to be here now with me and Peter. Nika and John, thank you for coming into WGBH. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Glad to coincidentally happen to be here. <laughs> it's great when it works out like that, right? So let me ask you two. Uh, Peter went with groundbreaking. I went with seismic. If you guys had to pick one word to describe the September 4th election, in all its glory, not just your wins, what would that word be? Exhausting doesn't count, right? I'll let, I'll let John go first. Uh, I would say uh, uh, exciting. And you can go with exhausting no, if I'm you gonna say I'm going to say visionary. There's a lot of new vision put forth. I would agree that there has been a lot of new vision put forth. I will defend groundbreaking because I think if it's more than that, it's going to take a few years for us to know. Yeah. All right, let's get to that stuff, the, the real-world ramifications of it, in just a, a moment. But I want to ask the two of you at the outset, Nika and John, what has the last week been like, just on a personal level? Well, uh, to take your word, it's been exhausting. Uh, you know, that day was a memorable day um, for a host of reasons. Uh, it's been catching up on a lot of sleep. You know, my wife's a scientist, and she actually studies sleep. So she says, I've been on some sort of sleep deficit for the past couple of months. So really just catching up with friends and family and all your supporters and the voters. And I've just been so thankful, filled with gratitude um, for what we've been able to accomplish. But the job isn't done yet. We have November and the real work is ahead. I woke up feeling burdened because I talked to uh, over a couple thousand voters and hundreds, hundreds more of their family members and neighbors and uh, a lot of people have raised things that I now feel responsible for. And I had to kind of work through not feeling like I had taken the, the weight of my district onto my shoulders, not only because I'm not capable of that, uh, but savior complexes are bad. <laughs> so so uh, I think I've recovered, but it, but it took me until Saturday night to get a good night's sleep. There was definitely a moment where it was, um, what do I do now? Right? Right. Like, yeah. Yeah. Tell me more about that what do you do now moment. Well, I mean, it's just, I mean, you spend so much time thinking about September 4th and what that day means, not just for you, but for your family, for your friends, for the community. And you get there and, um, and again, you have all the desires and concerns and um, what the community wants um, and, you know, how do you, how do you make it happen? I know that according to at least Statehouse News, Nika, your opponent, uh, Ways and Means Chair Jeffrey Sanchez, did not congratulate you in the remarks that he delivered to his supporters. Have you heard from him? I haven't, but uh, today my team and I decided to reach out to his office because it's important to make sure that 
uh, there's a good transition. So I just wanted to give them time. You know, I know there's probably a healing process, but uh, uh, many of the people in the district that I've already reached out to and started to meet with would just love for us to have some continuity. And I'm sure Rep Sanchez will feel the same way. And John, did you hear from Byron Rushing? I, I sure did. Um, Byron's a very gracious, uh, respectful man, and I talked to him the night of. What did he say to you? Well, he just congratulated me. Um, you know, it was a long, uh, hard-fought victory. I think um, it was difficult on both of, uh, on both ends, and uh, he was just very gracious. It wasn't a very long conversation. I mean, this is the seat that Mel King once had. So Mel King, Byron Rushing, and now me. I'm talking about big shoes to fill there. It's a heritage. Uh, but it's one that I'm completely um, excited to be a part of. I was just at Mel King's house yesterday and talking to him about it. But um, I'm sure Byron and I will talk. When you mentioned the savior complex, and I understand you were saying that in all modesty, but let me press you both. You were two progressives, strong progressives, who were replacing two people that most Democrats would also consider progressives. In the larger scheme of things, I'm talking about the state house scheme of things, how much difference does that make? Yeah. I've talked to a few reps about, so, the, so reps wouldn't talk to me when I was the third rail running against, <laughs> running against Rep Sanchez, and I understood that, or most wouldn't, and none would publicly. Uh, but now there are a lot who have called me up, and Speaker DeLeo also called me. He was the first to call me, in fact, and also was extremely gracious, and uh, he persevered through lots of phone difficulties, and we had um, some good laughs together, and I'm looking forward to uh, meeting with him in person. People are ready for a change in how things operate. I think people hear the voters saying a progressive needs to be reflected in the legislation that we pass. We need Massachusetts to lead again. We need to pass things where there are low-hanging fruit, such as the education bill and the climate bill, where there was not only unanimous approval, so Senate Republican districts agreed, but where there was majority support in the House. And we have to rethink um, and I don't know who agrees with this specific piece, but I think that means we have to rethink what consensus means and the role of consensus in the face of legislative uh, emergencies. How might you need to rethink the role of consensus? What's the current definition of consensus as uh, things have operated under Speaker DeLeo, and, and what would you like to see it shift to? Sure. Uh, so progressive values can be the same, but if you're going to have progressive action, you can't wait for 80, 90, 100 percent of the reps to agree with something when xenophobia is on the line, when poor districts, urban and rural are on the line, with, as, as with the case with education funding, uh, when climate change is on the line and the impacts that it has across the Commonwealth and across the country. Uh, we should go with 50% plus one. If we had to wait for consensus, then uh, we never would have gotten through the civil rights movement. We never would have gotten through uh, LGBTQ plus advances. Uh, these are the kinds of issues where Massachusetts has tended to lead out. And if we're going to lead out again, we have to fall back to the framers of our Massachusetts Constitution, who then, of course, uh, helped us to frame our, our United States Constitution, who recognized that a Democratic majority is there so that you cannot have the tyranny of a minority group. Right now, we're, we're sort of under the tyranny of mediocrity. And then there's also the problem of corporate funding of campaigns and how that influences a minority of reps and then gets passed through to um, a lack of legislation moving, which there's no penalty for if people don't run against you on it because you can not pass things and no one has to prove that you didn't do it. I think it's also important to notice, I mean, I think the media doesn't always um, capture this, the nuances in each race. Some of the media would portray our race very similarly, but there <laughs> were some differences for sure. 
Uh, you bring up an excellent point. I mean, you know, Byron is to many, he is the progressive leader for decades. And um, there's no doubt that a part of my run for office was my disenchantment with the House leadership and particularly on the issues that you just were d- discussing, but also what's going on on the ground. And I think, you know, unless you were in the South and in Lower Roxbury knocking on doors, talking to people, um, you hear their frustrations with what's going on with respect to the opioid issue, housing and gentrification, um, people asking for some more bold and engaged leadership. And so, you know, no one's trying to out left Byron Rushing or be, you know, uh, progress them, so to speak. Um, but um, I think when it comes to issues, that's what, what this race was about. You mentioned opioids, and the Boston Globe, in its endorsement of you, specifically mentioned your thinking on opioids, that they hoped you'd bring some fresh new thought to the subject. Could you share your thoughts with us? Well, I, I think there's just been a lack of leadership when it comes to the opioid epidemic. I think if we look at who's working on the issue, it's been largely the Republican governor. It's my belief that Mm. the Democrats really should be leading on this issue. And particularly the person that represented from the man Suffolk, where you have Mass Ave and Melnia Cass, where, you know, people have referred to a term that I don't like to use, methadone mile. Um, But I think there was some leadership missing. I think we need to be innovative. I think we need to bring a sense of urgency to that. And this is something I see, not just as a physician, I work in the ER, right there smack in the middle of it but I'm also a resident of I live just a block away from Mass Ave so I walk and I see this every day so it's about my patients but it's also about uh, my neighbor my quality of life what's wrong with the Republican governor leading well I think the fact that he is bringing it up it's a start I just think there's a lack of urgency and innovation and I'll give you an example Uh, my first year as a doctor I was trying to you know check something there was there was a prescription monitoring program I don't know if you've heard of that intervention the idea is where you could check online and here I am my first year as a doctor, and I'm looking to see if I can check if whether this patient with back pain, um, who the Advil, the Tylenol isn't working, if I could check it. And I get online, and I can't check the, the database. And only person that could check the database was the attending, the supervising doctor. And that didn't make any sense to me because we know that residents, by and large, do all the hospital duties, do all the prescriptions, particularly in Massachusetts and in Boston, a very heavy hospitalized um, part of the country. And so this lack of insight was really concerning to me. And so what, um, in my experiences in community organizing, sometimes what's happening in the offices around the big round table doesn't necessarily translate to what's the, the realities of what's going on, on the ground. And I think as an ER physician, someone who sees this day in, day out, um, someone who sees the fact that there is a bottleneck. For example, you know, there's a continuum of care. You start off in detox, and you go to detox, and so we might, you know, t- um, pat ourselves on the back with more detox beds, but people leave detox, and there's no, you know, transitional, you know, services to go after that. So I'll see patients all the time. I just left detox. I couldn't get into the next step in the continuum of care, and therefore I went to go use again. Nika, when you and I talked after the Democratic Unity event the day after it's the election, that's it's not my phrase. Wait, why don't you like uh, Unity event? Okay, I had a very narrow perspective that's kind of funny. John made me go. I'm honoring I'm you on that. <laughs> and uh, I was, like, walking by his house when he yeah, called. True story, true story. Yeah. yeah, it's true. I'm walking by his house trying to have a day off, which just he obliterated, first of all, my first in, non-existent day off. <laughs> and so he's like, the unity breakfast. And I'm like, you know they only call it unity breakfast, so you feel like a jerk if you don't go. <laughs> and then we get there, and there's no breakfast. Okay, so I haven't eaten. John is getting the ire. So is everyone who talks to me for the first 10 minutes, including Russell Holmes. <laughs> 
Then the second thing that I'm really concerned about is there are all these cameras everywhere. And I ask Rep. Holmes, what is this? And he says, it's a press conference. How do you conflate a press conference with a unity breakfast? That's actually the opposite of the environment that's going to be unity. So I'll stop there. Anyhow, what did I say to you? Oh, that's that's what plenty, and that's great. And by the way, you know, this, this honesty <laughs> is so refreshing. <laughs> I said to someone when I walked in, if you had more people of color as representatives, you would know there would be a riot if you name something breakfast and people can't find their hot food. Anyway, so, yeah, we talked about things. What did we talk about, Adam? One of the things that you and I talked about was your interest in changing the way the House makes legislation. How would you like to see the lawmaking process, broadly speaking, changed at the House level? And what do you think the implications would be when it comes to what kind of legislation gets created? What we don't have built into our legislation is the executables. If you fail, what are the consequences? How do you change uh, what you've written? So if we define affordable housing in a way that doesn't actually reduce displacement, what are the consequences for that? Those should be built into the legislation themselves. And then with transparency, we need to make sure that uh, roll calls are called. And that means um, you know, you are not penalized for, uh, you know, by leadership or anyone else for uh, speaking up about your vote. We need to make sure that uh, the speaker, and I'm not talking about Speaker DeLeo. Uh, again, like I've often said, this isn't a mustache-twirling villain uh, story. This is a story of structural problems, which has been my, um, my profession, is helping leaders to identify structural problems that are imp impediments to progress. We've been accepting impediments to progressive progress that we can change by changing simple rules, such as the Speaker of the House should not uh, select every uh, leader, every committee leader. Committees should democratically elect their own leader. I know you say that you're not targeting Speaker DeLeo specifically there, but I would imagine if I were the Speaker that I might bristle a little bit at someone who was just elected to my body but is coming in from the outside. I've been here for a long time. I have a certain way that I've done business, which includes, among other things, um, naming the heads of all committees for the House. Then you are elected. You win an impressive victory. You suggest, OK, I, I want to help the speaker see that. And I'm, my words, not yours. I want to help the speaker see that the way he and others have been doing things is the wrong way to go. My assumption is there's going to be some defensiveness and maybe some resentment from people who have been in the building for a while as you come in suggesting, hey, I've got a I've got a bunch of ideas about how you guys can all do your jobs much better than you have been. Is that a fair assumption? I never assume that people are going to be defensive, although I often find it. I haven't found it so far. And, uh, you know, I'm hoping that the speaker and the reps um, will recognize myself and, and many of the other incoming freshmen and um, those who have maybe been there for, you know, one term or two terms, that there are fresh ideas that are resonating with the will of the voters. And uh, what I think is that perhaps even the speaker, that many reps have felt constrained by the structure. And that is extremely common uh, when things get hard or challenging and in a business or in a nonprofit organization, that uh, people will dig into the way that it has been and then find that the problems get worse because the way that it has been is what created the original problems. There's so much writing on this. So do you also want to see open debates on the floor when legislation is hashed out? Uh, at a minimum, legislators should have the opportunity to debate amendments that are offered. Right now, the way that it works in the House side, at least, is that 
Um, if any legislator uh, wants to tank um, a piece of legislation that's going to be passed, they can offer 10, 12, 14 amendments without uh, giving the legislators the benefit of reading those amendments. And we have legislators that are voting up or down based on law that they have not read. And if they try to stop that process, they are threatened and penalized. I believe that um, transparency is not only in the best interest of democracy, but it's in the best interest of the reps. They just need to understand that the retaliation that is levied against them is no longer acceptable. And I will take whatever I have to take to make sure that it's exposed. And I hope that the speaker is excited that in this, in the, you know, in the age of uh, Trump, where where the federal government is dismantling many of the justice moves that that uh, Massachusetts has led on for not only decades but centuries, from public education all the way through marriage equality, that it's important for us to change our tactics to make sure that we can be a leadership-oriented state. Progressives represent, loosely speaking, about forty percent of the House. In, and I'm saying those are men and women who self-identify or members of the Progressive Caucus. I might be underestimating by a little bit. But the other Democratic, of the other Democratic members, there's 10 to 20 percent that would probably feel at home in the Republican Party, except this is a Democratic state. And they're sort of the Massachusetts equivalent of bull weevils, if you will. Democrats who have, they don't vote with the Republicans because the Republicans were in the minority. They often align with them. But they're at odds with the progressives at large. I don't mean just you two. I mean the progressives at large. Have you given this any thought or... How, when you get into the body, do you approach a situation where there's much less unanimity beneath the surface than there appears to be on the surface? You know, I don't know if I'm being naive or not, uh, but I, you know, I, I really kind of stay away from, you know, the, the, the labeling. I think that does an injustice to the cause at times, you know. Who's a progressive? Who's not a progressive? Who's a so-called Republican? I, I believe everyone's that they're there to do the will of the, the voters, you know, that we have shared interest. I mean, I think, you know, I, I look at the opioid instance for exa- as an example. Um, you could look at Republicans, Democrats, progressives. Everyone's on board with this. And I think there's a, a number of uh, low-hanging fruit that we can get to. Well, just to follow up for both of you, and in, in the example I'm going to use is affordable housing. The, the more or less progressive members of the House have been repeatedly thwarted by moderate and conservative members of the House who are, I'll politely say, are egged on by real estate interests and also by the Massachusetts Cities and Towns Association who worry about building more affordable housing throughout the state. I mean, that's a real situation. And that is a case where, you know, the labels I'm sure aren't perfect, you know, perfectly applied, but where we have a, uh, a pressing need. Intellectually, how do, you wrap, how do you wrap your head around a problem like that? There are several things, and the voters have spoken to most of them. So one, when you uh, talked about real estate interests, that looks like money in campaign coffers. And so, you know, I was running against an opponent who has just really mastered a system we can't, uh, you know, it's like a game we can't play to afford to play anymore. And that included, you know, having 
uh, 300 lobbyists and their spouses give over $60,000. It included having the Real Estate um, Association uh, fund uh, dozens and dozens, um, it seemed like, of mailings that were coming, but dozens of thousands of dollars of mailings coming out that aren't even counted in the 300 plus thousand dollars that my opponent spent. And he was doing what he is supposed to do. He was doing what he is trained to do. We have to stop as voters um, allowing our representatives to take corporate conflict of interest money from real estate, from fossil fuel industry. We are not capable, I think, I am not capable as a human being of the mental gymnastics that's required to put my constituents first when my campaign is entirely dependent on uh, countervailing interests. So that's one thing. And the second thing is, Voters are also saying, we want our representatives to reflect us. And this is where I fully agree with John on the, on the limitation of the labels, because there are very many districts where uh, there is data that shows that, that districts in terms of voters, and then even more so in terms of residents, uh, would identify progressive, which is not a term that needs to be tied to conservative or liberal. It has to do with justice and opportunity for all. And there are people across the spectrum that are looking for more of that, particularly getting rid of structural racism, getting rid of structural poverty that's built into the way that we make decisions. And it's built in by preferring corporate interests over the interests of the people, such as when you're going to make a housing-related decision, the first things to get gutted are the things that, that benefit people who are low income. Uh, when you're going to make an education decision, the things that get promoted uh, impact privatization. The same thing with public transit. And people are saying our representatives are less progressive in that regard than we are. And there are very many districts where that's the case. I call that a progressive deficit in the mortgage sense. And I think transparency is the cure to that. Because when voters understand that the block between them and affordable housing is not in fact their representative or even the leadership, but the leadership's dependency on corporate interests in order to keep all of their people happy and to keep their leadership positions. If we get rid of that, we will see uh, Massachusetts' real capability of, as a progressive leader come out. How do you get corporate money out of politics at the state level? What, what's the solution? Right, because the Supreme Court did not do us a solid with Citizens United. And so what we have to do is... Um, Make sure that the voters understand what is public record right now. The Office of Campaign Political Finance, it tells us where all the money comes from. But I had to put together a sophisticated opposition research team that would analyze not only my giving, but also my opponent's giving, so that I could even know how much of my own giving is corporate. And uh, these are the kind of things that need to be done. They need to be funded, um, perhaps by the nonprofit sector. Like right now, a lot of nonprofit PACs, they focus on giving money to campaigns. I think they should focus on hiring staff that are capable of making these things transparent so voters can decide. Um, you can know. You can have a rating for your level of dependency on corporate conflict of interest money in any in any given um, area. I've talked to a couple of uh, tech geniuses. Can we have apps? Can we have something that takes this public record and makes it easy for a voter to know how dependent or not dependent is my uh, candidate that I'm looking at or the two candidates that I'm looking at? How dependent are they on corporate conflict of interest money? And also, we need to demand accountability in the budget as well to bring out where we have this billion dollars in uh, targeted corporate tax credits that are going to specific industries like biotech industry in place of funding the education system, for example. You know, that information is all there. 
we have to elevate our level as voters to take our democracy to the next level and really say, we're going to understand when you tell us we can't afford something, what exactly we have been spending that money on, the same way we would do with our stocks, the same way we would do with our home budget, the same way we would do with any business or nonprofit we were on the board of. The voters have to see ourselves as a board of directors and we have to do our job. And I think the great thing about this race, and I don't know if you feel like this, but I felt that my allegiance is to the voters. Exactly. Yeah, and to my values and to my patients. You know, I, it wasn't with the speaker. It wasn't with, you know, the mayor or any, any pol- politicians because they were hesitant to, hesitant to get involved with the race. And so there's this um, refreshing kind of aura I get. I just I feel good about that. I can go there and I can just do the work of the people on behalf mm-hmm. of the people and feel good about it. Nika, you mentioned after that delicious unity breakfast that we were both at. You're lucky. I was, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you mentioned, among other things, that if I recall correctly, you have been taking notes on whenever anyone used the word progressive with you out on the campaign trail. You were trying to keep tabs on what it meant yeah. to different people, of right? I have a matrix for everything. So, so <laughs> what are the consistencies that you noted when voters use that term? And what are areas where there's a difference of opinion? Very often our identity as whatever, Democrat, liberal, conservative, progressive, is tied to our values, but it's not in alignment with our actions. This is also true of people of faith. It's true of any ideological perspective. So in my district, which includes Jamaica Plain, uh, half of it, parts of Brookline, parts of Rosendale, and all of Mission Hill, there is a longtime heritage of people identifying with progressive, and by that meaning, we fight for justice for all. We want opportunity and prosperity to be for all, regardless of Uh, your sexual uh, orientation or identity, your gender identity, your race, where you were born, when you were born, you know, a whole variety of things, uh, sex and whatnot. And that is the baseline. But we have this um, type of voter for whom being progressive is more like um, an identity and less like a set of actions. And so I divided the voters that I talked to which again, I personally knocked on over 4,300 doors. You have the person who's looking for a progressive threshold. That means you just have to be progressive enough. And most Democrats in the legislature would pass muster because all you have to do is show that I did some things that are progressive. So you can say, I increased education funding. The fact that you had to shut down Uh, a doable, workable proposal that people were ready to pass to fully fund education is not that relevant because what you did was good enough. And then there are people that have issues, climate change, education, specifically charter schools and capping charter schools within education. So you get my picture. They tend to define progressive in light of how much can you get done, like getting the most possible that you can get done in my particular issue. And then the third type of progressive is looking more broadly for a movement. The way that I would discern these people is by asking a couple of questions. So I would say, hey, my three, my three issues are healthcare for all, housing for all, and also education for all, and sort of define that briefly. And I'm saying we have these emergency issues of immigration and also climate change. And then I would you know, give my spiel of why I'm running. And so try it in 30 seconds, say that, and then say, what are the issues that you care about? And this is a massive generalization, but people drop into the three categories by this. If they say, I haven't thought about it, they're generally a threshold progressive. And so that means as long as you have a baseline of being a basically good person, a basically good human, and you're basically trying to help, they'll understand if you can't be super progressive. 
the middle person is going to say exactly what I said to them. They're going to say, oh, I also care about education and healthcare," or, oh, I also care about housing and education. And they're going to say back exactly the words that I just said. That's somebody that they know that they want their progressive values to show up in legislation, but they haven't put a lot of thought into how. And uh, then the third kind of category of person is going to blow whatever I said out of the water. They might use the same uh, categories or they might have totally different categories and they will come back and say, specifically on climate, what do you think about the renewable portfolio standard? These are people that are very knowledgeable and educated about what the indicators of progressive action look like. That was the voter that I most appealed to because that's what I'm like. I'm about action and execution. But the way that we learn to talk to the other voters is to help them understand Massachusetts actually has the capability to lead and we have missed opportunities that are here. We can define progressive in a way that conservatives would actually really um, appreciate our inclusion of them because justice for all includes conservatives as well. And uh, I call this voter Judy uh, because there are just so many Judys in my district who are you know 60 and over and wealthy and they're saying to me, sorry, Judy's, I'm not talking about you, Judy. I'm talking about the other Judy that lives down the street from you. Um, and they're saying to me, oh yes, um, I understand what you're talking about. I read a New York Times article on, you know, being black in America last week. And so, like, this is sort of their level of education about progressivism, which is fine because they have lives and big things that they've been doing in life that don't include following politics like a maniac, which is normal and healthy. But we have to find a way to speak to the Judies to say, look, I know there's no difference to you between a progressive that's a good person and a progressive that's taking action, but I guarantee you that the legislators in there would love to be taking more action. And if we change the systems a little bit, Massachusetts can actually exercise leadership and help our young democracy evolve to the next level. And that, what, that is what appealed to the people who weren't sort of radical progressives such as myself. Well, I can't say my matrix of uh, breaking down <laughs> voters into three different tiers was as exact or was as defined. Um, for me, it, it, I look at progressivism as just uh, through a lens of justice and fairness. Uh, you know, I've devoted my life to public service, you know, whether as a doctor, as a Peace Corps volunteer, as an organizer, as a captain in the Army. And so this run for office and kind of what I was hinting at earlier wasn't truly out, trying to out-progress, or if that's a term, uh, Byron rushing. It was really about giving people uh, an opportunity to speak and let their voices be heard. And it was amazing to me how many times I spoke to someone who said this is the first time someone's ever asked of my opinion, yeah. particularly in different languages. I mean, there's a growing Latino community in Boston, particularly in my district. Um, and I was just surprised to see how these people hadn't been engaged in the process. They had registered to vote, but they hadn't voted. Um, they had showed up to a community meeting but felt unwelcome. And I said, this opportunity was for me to go out there and to meet them and ask them about their concerns. And similar to you, yeah. I would say, hey, you know, my name is John Santiago. I'm your neighbor. I live down the street from you. Um, I work in the neighborhood. Um, what do you care about? You know, what, what are you interested in, 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 in fighting for? And they would share whether it was housing, whether it was the opioid issue, whether it was this gentrification, which is always defined as, I feel like I live in two different neighborhoods. Yeah. Um, and you know, if I could advocate for them, um, you know, that, that's what this race was about. Naturally, I have to ask you who the next Speaker of the House should be, since either Bob DeLeo will be reelected in early 2019 or someone else will be picked to take his place. Uh, any thoughts on that? Well, I mean, I think the question's very premature. Right. We don't know, <laughs> but, uh, we don't know half you know, the people I, in there. <laughs> I've met four or five uh, state reps, very nice people. Uh, uh, but, you know, I look forward to meeting the rest and to working with them and, and just seeing who will be the next speaker. But I think it's a, uh, it's a premature question to ask. Yeah. 
I think the next speaker should be the person who is uh, really able to get their head around what the voters have just said across the district and across the country uh, on the Democratic side about the desire to see execution on progressive legislation and who expresses a willingness to make the changes to make our uh, state house more transparent and more democratic in how it works. And I really hope that that'll be DeLeo because he already has a lot of traction. And so I hope that he will sort of make some announcements about uh, what he has heard and how he's responding to that. And then we could all get behind him in uh, developing the most progressive state, the most progressive legislature that Massachusetts has seen in a couple decades. I know it wouldn't necessarily have been in the purview of that uh, call that he made to you. He left a voicemail for you, right? Telling you that you'd won, which is how you learned? Uh, he left me a voicemail, and then he called. We we played phone tag. Uh, he was excessively persistent, which I thought was amazing, given, you know, I'm sure he's extremely busy at this time of year. Uh, and then we were able to talk on the phone. So in the conversation that you had, I don't want you to get, uh, I don't want to ask you to betray any private details, but did he say anything that indicates that he checks off the boxes that you just ran through and that he is, as you would see it, reading the will of the voters in the right way and thinking about changing the House's MO and the way you'd like to see it altered? No. <laughs> to be fair to him, I think he's exhibited that in the past. I mean, look at criminal justice reform. Um, I think, you know, he's done some things to, to show that he can change, that the House can move forward in progressive fashion. And if he's willing to be that person to uh, stand up for progressive ideals and, and change the way that the House is run, yeah. um, you know, I wouldn't have a problem voting for him either. Yeah, he'll have my support. He, yeah. he didn't, um, but he didn't not you know, either. And so I thought he was delightful. And uh, our conversation made me look forward to having a one-on-one conversation with him about what his values are. Adam, you know I can't resist the historical analogy. Um, Lyndon Johnson, is when he was majority leader, um, especially right after he was elected on election night, he sat by his phone with a list of the phone numbers for every Democrat running for almost any office across the United States. Well, in, in, in not only in the Senate, but also in the House. And he wanted to be first. I mean, that's a commitment to legislating. One of the things I hope that, and I know some legislators have taken notice of, is hundreds and hundreds of people got behind our collective campaigns. I had 400 shifts on Get Out the Vote Day alone. And I had 600 volunteers signed up before any of the endorsements, before I even launched. Hundreds and hundreds more came in uh, because of progressive groups, uh, because of um, groups like Our, Our Revolution, Progressive Massachusetts, uh, Mass Women's Political Caucus, which is which is a nonpartisan group, um, you know, Mass National Organization of Women. There is a movement that is building, and the voters are saying, we are not going to let our representatives be bullied. We are going to demand that they represent us. And we are willing to send our armies to any representative that needs our help. And I think this is the kind of fierceness that the House needs, that the House loves. I think people want to be able to legislate in ways that reflect their people. Reflect their people. I think we want to be able to battle out and actually debate uh, legislation instead of being told how we're going to vote or not vote. I have heard a number of legislators express that over the years and over the last week. And I think it's an exciting time where Speaker DeLeo has the opportunity to be celebrated as the most progressive Speaker of the House in a couple of decades of Massachusetts uh, legislation. And I hope he will take that opportunity and let Massachusetts lead again. 
And with that, it's time to wrap up this installment of The Scrum, WGBH News' politics podcast. Nika Lugardo, John Santiago, thanks to both of you, and good luck on Beacon Hill. Thanks also to Peter Kadzis, my WGBH News colleague and cubicle mate. Peter, the <laughs> pleasure was mine. It was a lot of fun, and I hope our two new elected officials have as much fun doing what they'll be doing as Adam and I do doing what we do. And of course, as always, thanks to you for taking the time to listen. If you haven't already, we would love it if you subscribed to The Scrum at Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcast content. We'd also love to hear from you if you've got praise, constructive criticism, or just want to say hello. The best way to catch us is probably on Twitter. Peter is at Kadzis. I am at Riley Adam. This episode was produced by Gary Mott. I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News. Thank you.